0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Bill Clegg, author of the novel, Did You Ever Have a Family? Clegg is a literary agent and has also written two memoirs. His novel, Did You Ever Have a Family?, was long listed for the Man Booker Prize and the National Book Award. We began by discussing his novel's title. In the epigraph, Clegg quotes a poem called Song and Dance by Alan Shapiro, that has a line that is the title of the book. So I'm wondering what you saw about this line that made you want to make it into a novel.
1: The lines from the poem, Did You Ever Have a Family, they existed for me long, long, long before even the idea of writing a novel uh, existed. There was a, um, There is a writer named Haven Kimmel, a great writer who had a novel called Something Rising, and she used it as her epigraph. I represented the book. And this is many years ago. And when she sent the poem to me to say, "This is what I want to use for the epigraph," these lines from this poem, I just read that sentence, or just that line, and and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I actually said to her at the time, "This should be the title of your book." And um, and she was like, "No, thanks. I like the one I have." <laughs> and uh, it just it never went away. I mean, there I, I used to know somebody who used to. Um, that The Heart is a Lonely Hunter is uh, a title that could be used for every novel, and in a way, I feel like this is a title that could be used for every novel, or at least like almost every novel that I would be interested in reading. So over the years with my clients, because I'm a literary agent, as my day job, we bump into situations where the publisher doesn't like the original title and we're all trying to figure it out. And I've brought up Did You Ever Have a Family a few times for novels that I thought it could apply to. Nobody took it, thank God. And then when I was really just beginning to flop around and... and
0: say that the first time you read it, it hit you like a ton of bricks. Is it because there's something rhetorical about it? To me,
1: it right away seems like the answer to a question and not a question, which is um, a little strange to say, but I don't know, maybe it's because of the family that I grew up in, which I'm very close to now, but we all kind of had to splinter away from each other and find other families to be strong enough to come back and figure out our own. I, I know the agony of family, but I also know the incredible staining gift of family. And so, something about that question do you ever have a family? It's just, it just it holds like all that pain and wonder and grace and struggle and everything that comes with. Of the family and it is the answer to the question there's just sort of nothing like a family <laughs> and so that's why I think it hit me viscerally for you know before I even understood exactly like why which is usually the experience for me with poetry which is that it rings true and deep and um, and then the, the the pleasure is in unpacking why and, and, and so I feel like in the writing of the book I've been unpacking why.
0: So once you had this title, have you ever had a family? How did you decide the plot that you wanted to tell that represented this title and the structure of your book? The basic plot of your book is that the, one of the main characters, June, her house blows up She's not in her house, but in her house that evening is her daughter, her daughter's fiancé, her boyfriend, and her ex-husband. So basically, she loses everyone at once. And then the tale is told from all different points of view. Each chapter is someone else's point of view, talking about the incident or talking about June. Some of the people are the family of her daughter's fiancé or people who just witnessed June on her journey when she takes off on a road trip. How did you decide all that?
1: I didn't, you know, the 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 structure, and even the plot, like sort of all of it, kind of like rose out of the process of of the very beginning, which was, um, I, you know, I was working on my first memoir, Portrait of an Addict as a Young Man, which kind of chronicles the last couple of months of my drinking and drugging, and in um in New York, when I was thirty three, and it flashes back to the preceding years um, from the age of really from kind of like memory to, to my early thirties. And so for the first time in my adult life, I was sort of actively remembering my growing up years in college. And in my twenties in New York, I was actively not remembering. I had to shut the door on that and was, you know, sort of nursing a, a cocaine habit and, and, a, and an increasing dependence on alcohol. And none of that was particularly um, conducive for reflection. So, and so when I got to process of writing memoir, I was 34, 35, I was sober, I was really looking at my growing up years with clear eyes, and, and in particular, the town that I grew up in, which by wealthy families from elsewhere, mostly New York, and used as vacation houses. And so just the impact that that kind of change um, on, a, on such a small community, what that would be, interested me. And, and then also just remembering the tensions between these, you know, kind of local working class families who had been there for generations and these wealthy New Yorkers and some from Boston some from Los Angeles coming in on the weekends and in the summers. Really occupying the best houses and and properties and and um but only barely. I mean, there are so many houses in those towns that stand empty most of the time. And and the people who may have used to live in them, their families may have lived there for generations, but they've long since sold them and moved out of town. These people work on those properties. They fix the roofs and 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 um and shutters and mow the lawns and. Like what that what that does to a community, and and just that sort of simmering tension, and also the kind of longing too. Like you know, they all live in in this very small place with one grocery store and one gas station, and share a lot of the same things, and yet like the the experience of living is so vastly different, or seems to be. So I just I just became kind of obsessed with it. And, I, and while I was writing the memoir, I opened up a file on my computer and just started kind of playing around with kind of writing some more some essayistic stuff about the town and. First, I thought it was sort of in service of the memoir, and then at one point I wrote these three words: "She will go." And really, kind of out of nowhere, they were—I didn't know who she was, I didn't know where she was going—but I just—I knew right away that that there was somebody leaving a town very much like the one that I grew up in, and um, and that's that's at first when I knew that there was something fictional happening. And on the other side of that, I just started playing with voices. Like in in the town, I knew that if there was somebody leaving a town like that in any kind of drama, um, they'd be there would be gossip or chatter, and people would be talking about like who she was and why she was leaving and what she did, and they would have judgments about it. And so I would tune into these voices, almost like a frequency on a radio, kind of find out you know about her and the circumstances of her leaving. And so so. Even the method of the book, which is following the the central characters in kind of a close third person, surrounded by a chorus of voices from the community, that became the method of the book. Like that's that's the structure of the book, and that that was really the beginning of the process. Now, eight years ago,
0: you're listening to First Draft: A Dialogue on Writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Bill Clegg, author of the novel. Did you ever have a family? One of the things that stands out about your book is that you're capturing this small town, and a lot of people who live there cannot escape their past. They are known for everything they've ever done. So can you talk about that?
1: That is one of the things that I was most interested in. You know, having come from such a small town, and I went to the public schools there for grammar school and high school, and there are people, you know, a lot of people went away. There's, there's, There are no jobs there, really. Um, um, beyond working for people who own these houses and, and, and stay in them on the weekends and the summers. Um, and a lot of people I, I, I know left, but a lot of people I know stayed. And even when I go back there and when I talk to friends from that area, same stories come up. And they're not about like last week or last year. They're about 1988
0: and what happened
1: the summer between you know junior and senior year in high school somebody's mother who embezzled money from the bank you know it's like the scarlet letter it's like these people like wear those histories like on their on their 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 clothing and I mean for example I was hit by a car when I was 12 years old and I was in front of this diner and the only eating establishment in the town and my mother found out about it because a neighbor called her and said you know Billy was playing chicken with the cars with Kenny Schwader Kenny was my best friend at the time and, you know, damn it, if he got hit, he's in the hospital. You know, that's how she found out. It's actually one of the only things in, in the book that came from real life, which is, um, you know, how how Lydia finds out about the, the accident. Uh, somebody calls her and says, you know, he's done it now. And and the, the, the transmission is much more about like assigning blame than letting somebody know that their that their child is, in my case, in the hospital and in, in Lydia's case, dead. And, and now, like, if you go back to my town and sit down in that diner and brought up my name, you know, a lot of other things have happened in my life since then, but but I, I guarantee somebody would point outside the diner window and say, mm, you know, uh, Billy Clegg, you know, he was playing chicken out there with Kenny and, you know, he got hit. He got hit. And people still believe that. Like, and I wasn't playing chicken with the cars. I was on a sidewalk, and the and the the driver was on heroin and alcohol and and swerved up on the sidewalk and hit me. But the story of me playing chicken with the cars was so much more satisfying and um to you know, for people gossiping about it. And it's just it it calcified within twenty four hours and remains to this day. And so for the character of Lydia in the book, who is really the the character who's the most bound to the town, has the least freedom and, and number of choices in terms of like where she can steer her life. She she wears that scarlet letter and 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 all the stories and judgments and bad decisions that she's made and the perceptions of them, you know, around her neck like a you know like a like a cowbell. You know, it's like it, they, they precede her.
0: So you have a diversity of characters that are given voice throughout the various chapters. There's white kids. There's black men. There's biracial, there's, there's lesbians, there's all these different voices that come in from the town where th- the incident took place all the way across to Washington State, where June ends. And you use varying points of view. And I'm wondering how you sort of manage the point of view, how you chose which person was going to be in what point of view, and how you ordered each section
1: just going back to kind of like the, the beginning of the process when um after those first three words she will go, I spent the next couple of years really just writing voices and much of it in the form of gossip about this woman and her boyfriend and her daughter and, and this wedding and eventually this explosion and the, the real um turning point was this character Lydia. She had been one of those voices and had been kind of an informant and um she at first wasn't even the mother of, of Luke June's boyfriend. Um, she was somebody else, and and she. Um, but I never could get her voice right. But the, the more I I thought about her, and the more I I wrote into that character, the more interested I got in her. And this kind of like I mean, talking earlier about that scarlet letter and that kind of like living in the town, you know, with your mistakes and your and 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 ju- and the judgments. Um, that the town has about those mistakes. She really embodies that for me. And, um, and so, um, so at a certain point, you know, I had hundreds of pages of Lydia's voice and, and none of it was quite right. And then I suddenly realized like this woman barely speaks. She's, you know, she cleans houses for people who aren't even in the houses. When she's there, they come up on the weekends. She interacts with very few people. um, And she's not, She's not sort of the, the result of years of therapy. She's, she's not, um, uh, as uh, somebody I used to know would say, reconstructed through analysis. <laughs> she, uh, she's not verbal. And so none, most of what she would have said that I had in in what I'd written wasn't even possible for the character that, that I imagined. And so I, I just started writing her in the third person and observing her. And uh, there's a scene at the beginning of the book where she hears the, some, some local people gossiping about her son and assigning blame to him for the, the house explosion and, and, of course, mentioning that he served time in prison, of course, mentioning that he was um, half black. And she explodes and, and, and marches out of the, the diner um, and walks home. And that was the first section that I wrote of her in the third person. And what I saw was that like just watching her and observing her um, from a near distance um, would and just how she moved through the world would be far more articulate about her than anything she could possibly say about herself. And so when she, when that became clear to me, uh, she and June and this teenage boy Silas, like they they appeared very clearly to me as the three primary characters in the book. And and then the voices that existed that I had been writing for so long the ones that mattered to the, to the story kind of began to sort of, uh, show themselves. And so I scrapped so much of what I'd written and then just started to marshal some of what I'd written and then just writing sort of new, um, material around these three characters. And, um, and so that was really in terms of the point of views and the perspectives, like that's kind of what, um, that's, that's how that was born, and, um, and, and then in terms of sort of the order of it, there was just the natural feel for sort of like what, what should come next and who should be heard from and what we needed to know, and, um, and that, proce- that, that was probably three and a half years into the process, almost four years, and then the next three years were um, kind of like carpentry. It was sort of like making that structure work.
0: Was there anything in particular that you thought about a lot when you were writing this, maybe something nagging at your mind or a theme or something like that?
1: For me, like the book also just is, it kind of demonstrates and, and explores something I believe to be true and have come to understand to be true, which is that forgiveness, both being able to, to grant it and, and also in, in receiving it is, you know, one of the most sort of like powerful uh, events uh, between people that can happen and it's like oxygen for any relationship and i don't mean just like parents and children or husbands and wives like friends i have a really close friend who's going through a um like a kind of a breakup with another friend and so much of it is because neither of them can forgive each other for a slight it's a slight there isn't even a, a major betrayal but it's a slight I, I i notice in my own life where we we choose to for, forgive each other or we don't and And even with colleagues, it's like people fail each other. We fail each other. We fail like we just do. And if we want to sort of have people in our lives in any capacity for any length of time, there has to be that kind of that event of forgiveness again and again and again and again. It's almost like we have to sort of recontract to go on with people. And at that sort of recontracting, forgiveness is sort of like the – amount of resentment. There's anger between people. There's and a lot of failure, people failing each other. And, um, and some some of the characters in the book can forgive each other, and some of them can't. And without that, uh, people end up very much alone. And so there's, there's, that's one of the things that I was kind of most interested in, in exploring and beca- becoming kind of obsessed with as the book unfolded.
0: Can you read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: epic and gorgeous, and um, I identify with moments in it all throughout, and it's fun to read out loud. I saw the wolf in winter watching on the raw hill. I stood at night on top of the black tower and sang. I saw my mouth in spring float away on the river. I was a child in rooms where the furs were climbing, and each was alone, and they had no eyes, no faces, nothing inside them anymore but the stories but they never breathed as they waved in their dreams of grass. And I sang the best songs that were sung in the world, as long as the song lasts, and they came to me by themselves. And I loved blades and boasting and shouting as I rode, as though I was the bright day flashing from everything. I loved being with women and their breath and their skin and the thought of them that carried me like a wind. I uttered terrible things about other men in a time when tongues were cut out for the island of Venus and a niece of the emperor in Constantinople, and I could have become the emperor myself. I won, and I won, and all the women in the world were in love with me, and they wanted what I wanted, so I thought, and every one of them deceived me. I was the greatest fool in the world, and I was the world's fool. I have been forgiven, and I have come home as I dreamed, and seen them all dancing and singing as the ships came in, and I have watched friends die and have worn black and cut off the Saved my head and the heads of my followers. I have been a poor man living in a rich man's house, and I have gone back to the mountains. And for one woman, I have worn the fur of a wolf, and the shepherds' dogs have run me to earth, and I have been left for dead, and have come back hearing them laughing, and the furs were hanging in the same places, and I have seen what is not there.
0: Do you want to just say a little bit about why you chose that?
1: I don't know what it is about the, the the voice. There's just something very familiar to me about the speaker, this imagined narrator, at a juncture in his life, talking about kind of a great rise and, and fall. And also, there's something also just about the bitterness at the very end. And it was nothing to you. Where were you? This, I mean, here he is, like, I set my sail for the island, the island of Venus the niece of the emperor in Constantinople. He's like this great lover and this great boaster and he's risen to great heights and everything's been taken away and he's been deceived and he's ruined everything and and, and here and he stands and it's addressed to someone and and someone who didn't who didn't give him something that he needed, which I think clearly is and the cadence and the the glory of it and drama. There's just something so pleasing and so vivid.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Bill Clegg, author of the novel, Did You Ever Have a Family? Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that you liked, how it turned out at the end, something that changed from the first draft or something that you found really tricky.
1: This is the very end of did you ever have a family? Like I, I, I circled it and circled it and circled it and didn't, didn't write the very end. I wrote up until the last paragraph, which was sort of the information that like wanted to be delivered. And but I wanted something to kind of like sort of hold it all like in a net. And so I, I, I started and stopped and started and stopped. And then at one point, I it really kind of a mood settled in on me, and I just I wrote it through and. they will get old. The Landises will come back every year. I will make up their rooms and bring them cookies for as long as I can. And when I can't anymore, they will still come with children and grandchildren, girlfriends and boyfriends and spouses. They will knock on our door and I will be there, crooked and old. And one day they will knock and I will be gone. And every time they come, they will tell those who don't know the story of the young man who was a boy here, who went away and came home and went away cleaned rooms and carved a canoe and on its prow painted the faces of a family. And the stories will change and the canoe will become a headboard and the family will be mermaids and the rooms will be mansions. And no one will remember us, who we were, or what happened here. Sand will blow across Pacific Avenue and against the windows of the Moonstone. And new people will arrive and walk down the beach to the great ocean. They will be in love or they will be lost. And they will have no words. And the waves will sound to them as they did to us the first time we heard them.
0: So tell me about writing that.
1: Sometimes when you write, like, it's not the sort of the carpentry of the words is not conscious. It's just, it really sort of streaks out. I think I, when I, what, what was in my mind that was just sort of how. All these characters in the book kind of have their various labels, like the, the ex-con, the flower shop owner, like the town hussy, the, the rich New Yorker. And, and all those labels are you know, involve judgment and expectation, and, and they reduce people to their most grippable stereotypes. But none of them are the truth of these people. And all those differences that are named actually only are costumes on sameness they have so much more in common with each other than, than not. And so Sissy is this character who kind of, I think she sort of understands that intuitively. And I think she's sort of just naming something as great as the ocean that when anybody hears the sound of the ocean, they're just as important seeming to the ocean, (laughs) which is not very. And then the sound of the ocean is the same. It's like, we're all in awe, and in that awe, we are we are connected in, in, in this sort of same way. The ocean, this sort of, like, great awe-inspiring, you know, force, I think is something that, like, we uh, human beings kind of, on some level, all respond to similarly. And so I just, I liked her invoking this kind of, like, this thing so much bigger than us that we all kind of arrive at in awe, and also that these lives of ours that are, you know, filled with so much like drama and triumph and pain and struggle. And, you know, it's all so very important to us as it's happening. And then it's over and, you know, people and other, others sort of like come in and, and occupy the same spaces that we did and go to the edge of the ocean that we went to and, and bringing the same armful of woe and, and wonder and, and so i just want i like the idea of her naming something bigger than, than us and, and something that we all kind of respond to collectively
0: where do you write
1: usually at the house that my husband and i go to on the weekends at the kitchen table i usually start early and end late and it's either you know over a vacation or a long weekend or in the christmas or the month of august which is very quiet in the publishing and sometimes i have a good friend who's a writer and sometimes we go away together um, and just rent a house Somewhere cheap and and write for a while.
0: What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Oh, I just go to my life. I just go to my office. <laughs> the office, and and which I, I mean I love what I do. I can't believe I get paid to do it. But it's it's not. There's no room for it. It's about other people's writing um, in in my office. Usually at the end of a period of writing, at the end of two or three weeks, it's such a relief to be in somebody else's problem. and their carpentry or shepherding their book into the world and not thinking about mine. Because usually by the time I'm standing up from writing, I've painted myself into some impossible corner and I have no solution. So I have to go boss somebody else around.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have a couple of friends who I show it to. I sometimes read it out loud to my husband, usually at a point where it's so terrible and and there's no context for it. So he's just very patient and sort of pats me on the head and says, very good, Back to the kitchen table.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Well, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fragile flower, like anybody else, when it comes to something that I care about or spent time with. So, um, you know, I, uh, I just, I just, I take the hit, feel the pain, and try and move on.
0: And what is your favorite word? My favorite word,
1: aye, aye, aye. maybe yes. I think yes, is I like
0: yes. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Bill Clegg, author of the novel, Did You Ever Have a Family? You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.